Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Monday, November 16th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. How AI brings Silicon Valley and the Pentagon together. Plus, why investors are excited about Airbnb going public. But first, Trump's last battle with China is today's one big thing. President Trump has 10 weeks left in office. In that time, we can expect to see him continue to crack down on China to try to cement the administration's contentious foreign policy relationship with Beijing. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is Axios' China reporter and has the scoop on what the Trump administration has planned. Hi, Bethany. Hi, Nyla. What are some of the policies we're thinking we're going to see here in these final weeks of the administration? In these last two months, what Trump administration officials are really trying to do is lock in some of these harsher, tougher measures that the Trump administration has really become known for in their relationship with China. The administration officials who are in charge of crafting Trump's China policy are going to place a big emphasis on going after Chinese government officials and entities and companies that are deemed complicit in China's human rights violations and in threatening U.S. national security. We're also going to see some public statements from John Ratcliffe, who's the director for national intelligence, revealing some of the things that Chinese government officials and perhaps intelligence officials have been doing in the U.S. to meddle in our politics. I wonder what you think about how you would sum up President Trump's legacy on China and the administration's legacy on China. President Trump brought to an end the period of engagement that characterized the U.S.-China relationship from, let's say, the late 90s up until 2016, which was Americans and multilateral institutions really welcomed open trade with China, hoping that these kinds of connections would influence China to become more similar to democracies. And what Trump has done is very much put an end to that idea and to those policies and put the U.S. and China in a frame of great power competition. I do want to say, though, that it was also China itself that did this. I mean, Xi Jinping very much views the U.S. through the lens of great power competition. And so in some ways, you could say that President Trump has simply brought U.S. policy in line with how China views the world. Bethany, we've been talking a lot about how we view the relationship with China and how President-elect Biden will view the relationship with China. What is the feeling in Beijing about Joe Biden winning the election? China's leaders know that President Biden, in comparison with President Trump, may present some short-term gain to China. However, in the long run, there may be some long-term pain for China because President Biden and his team are very focused on rebuilding America's relationships with its allies and on working through multilateral institutions to create and strengthen democratic norms that Beijing would prefer were eroded. So President Biden presents a different and potentially more severe challenge to Beijing. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is Axios' China reporter. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you so much, Nyla. We'll be back in 15 seconds with Airbnb's pandemic success story. Welcome back to Axios Today. 
Airbnb is likely to make the paperwork for an initial public offering public this afternoon. And that makes it set to be one of the biggest IPO filings of the year. Reuters estimates the company could be worth as much as $30 billion. Dan Primack is host of the Axios Recap podcast. He's also a business editor at Axios, and he's here with The Scoop. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. If you are not paying attention to the market or you don't know anything about IPOs, what is to you the most interesting thing about Airbnb and what we're going to see this week with it? The most interesting thing about Airbnb is that it has survived this, it seems, the pandemic better than have the companies it was trying to disrupt, namely the hotel companies. Airbnbs had huge problems this year. They had big layoffs. This IPO is coming much later than the company had hoped. But compared to hotels, Airbnb seems to be thriving. So when we think about sort of this gig economy, DoorDash is also supposed to go public later this year. I wonder what you think these two IPOs will tell us about the role these type of companies will play in the tech economy of the future. These were both questionable business models as far as a lot of Silicon Valley and particularly Wall Street were concerned. And the fact that they took the punch and seemed to have got off the mat and started punching back, I think is going to be something Wall Street's going to take a real hard look at and view very positively. Dan Primack writes the Pro Rata newsletter and is also host of the Axios Recap podcast. This afternoon, they'll be looking at the travel industry and how Airbnb fits in. Last week, President Trump staged a massive shakeup at the Pentagon, changes the Washington Post described as wiping away decades of military experience in these waning days of the Trump administration. When we look to President-elect Biden, one transition team appointment that stands out is Eric Schmidt. He's the former CEO of Google, and for the past four years, he's been in charge of the Defense Innovation Board, an independent organization that recommends emerging technologies like artificial intelligence to the Department of Defense. Brian Walsh is the future correspondent for Axios and has been reporting on this. First of all, the whole idea of AI in the military probably seems maybe alarming to people. So I wonder when we just say artificial intelligence in the military, what does that mean? I completely understand why people get alarmed. Your thoughts immediately go to Terminator and killer robots. But usually when we actually talk about AI in the military, you're seeing the ability of AI to process data incredibly fast, provide analysis much faster than humans could, and in doing so, augment the ability of human service people in the military to do any number of things. It might be logistics. It might sometimes eventually be on the battle space where you're actually using AI to help identify, using visual recognition, potential targets out there. Is it possible for the Department of Defense to do this on its own, or does it need the help of private tech to create the innovation that it wants to? The Department of Defense absolutely needs the help of the private sector when it comes to AI, which is somewhat unusual in the history of military technology. Often you have the technology emerging out of very well-funded military research, and then maybe eventually makes its way into the private sector, like the internet, for instance, or GPS. In the case of AI, the situation is totally reversed. The DOD really is depending on private sector companies because they're the ones who are unquestionably taking the lead on this. They have the best talent, they have the best resources, and they've been focusing on this. So if this is going to happen, you're going to have to have that civil and military fusion, and I think it's going to continue in the years ahead. A key part of this, as you said, is the talent. What does that look like when we think about Silicon Valley and working within the defense industry? What are attitudes about that like? So over the last few years, you had a few instances where in companies like Google, for instance, where you had employees saying, we don't want to do work for the Defense Department. But a new survey that came out last week from Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technologies 
found that once you actually survey AI talent, you find that a majority of them either feel positive or, you know, neutral at working with the DoD. Brian Walsh writes the Axios Future newsletter. The sounds of golf are a big deal to the fans, or so they tell me. Here's how the Masters sounded pre-pandemic. Usually, golfers play alongside packed sidelines full of clapping and cheering fans. It's also usually in April, but because of the pandemic started last Thursday and had a much different feel. At least the subdued atmosphere didn't hold back the players. Dustin Johnson still won on Sunday by a record 20 under par, five shots ahead of the rest of the field. That does it for us today. You can reach our team at podcasts at axios.com or find me on Twitter, at Nyla Boodoo. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. It helps others find us. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.